For those of you that are here for the first time in this series, let me just tell you that uh, today you have come for the conclusion of a letter, but you haven't missed out on the message. We're going to catch you up to speed pretty quick here. If you have been with me trekking through the last uh, three Sundays and now today being the fourth, I hope that you'll never look at the letter of Titus the same. I hope that God has illuminated uh, your understanding a little bit of the text. And, and I didn't say this in the first service, but let me just say this now to you. You get the edited version. See, that's how it works. When you come to the 11 o'clock, you get the edited sermon. Uh, let me just encourage you in this, that when we study the Word of God, God, God wants to give you understanding. God wants to, you know, this, some, we look at this book like it's a mystery, and I'm not going to lie. It is mysterious. There are parts of it that I will acknowledge I don't fully understand. But I think sometimes, because we don't understand everything, we can take on the false perception that we can't understand anything. How many of you know God didn't give us this book to confuse us? He gave us this book to guide us. It's God's letter of instruction. It's a roadmap for us. It's a guide. Psalms 119.105 says it's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. And I want to just encourage you, as we've been going through this letter of Titus, and as we're going to go in today, this is not necessarily a, a, what I would classify an inspirational sermon. I, I love preaching those types of messages, but you're going to have to put your thinking cap on today. We're walking through the Word of God, line by line, precept upon precept. And my heart for you, more than just you understanding what I'm saying today, though that is profitable. My heart for you and for everyone in this church is that we would become self-feeders. How many of you know what I mean when I say that? Self-feeders. How many of you ate more than one meal this week or last week? Maybe you only ate one this week because you had breakfast. But there, there are a lot of Christians that try to sustain their faith on one spiritual meal a week. And the averages in America, are, most Christians don't even attend every week anymore. It's like two or two and a half times a, a month. And, and to try to live a vibrant Christian life, only feeding your spirit when the, the pastor or the teacher is teaching, it's just not enough. Amen? It's just not enough. And so uh, we're taking some time to just walk through this text. And my hope is more than you just getting something out of this message or out of this message series is that you would be inspired to open your Bible and to go to God in prayer and ask the Spirit to speak to you and to give you instruction out of His Word. So I want to pray. If you found your way to Titus, yet we're going to be in chapter 3. Before we begin, I just want to ask God's blessing on this message today. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to open up the Word of God Lord, as we open the word, we open our minds, we open our hearts. Lord, give us understanding, give us insight, and Lord, we yield our spirits. Lord, as always, Lord, we want to respond to what you're saying. So God, speak clearly to us this morning. We give you thanks in advance for all you're going to say in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. I'm not going to take a lot of time to re recap the letter here if you have not been a part of this series and uh, missed the other weeks. I do want to give you a couple of verses that are pretty key uh, to understanding the letter of Titus. And the first one is in the first chapter and the fifth verse. If you want to know what the letter's about, this is a, a verse that says why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter 
to Titus. Titus was a young pastor. They had traveled to Crete, the island, together. They ministered there. They planted churches there. Paul left, and he left Titus there. Why? The answer is in verse 5. Look at it. He says very clearly, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul says, there's two reasons I'm leaving you there, Titus. One is to raise up leaders. We need leadership in the church. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about those requirements for the leaders in the church that he covers in chapter one. The second reason that he left Titus there was to bring uh, correction, to put some things in order, to set some things right that were out of balance. And we won't go into it today, but there was a lot of false teaching. There was a lot of uh, confusion in the church that was being caused by people who were either putting themselves in positions of leadership or just filling that leadership vacuum and teaching their own truths that were really adding to the gospel. They were making it harder for people to get saved than, than what the gospel message communicates. And Paul said, what are we going to do about that? Well, here's what he didn't say. He didn't say we're going to have like a, a town hall meeting and we're going to have a debate and we're going to argue with people about what is true. No, in fact, what he said, the, the solution to dealing with false teachers is to raise up godly teachers, raise up more true teachers. So he said, look, you need to put some things in order. You need to raise up some teachers that are going to lead people in the truth. And ultimately, he moves into to chapter two, and that's where we were a, a couple weeks ago, and he begins to talk about sound doctrine. In fact, that word sound he, he uses that word four times in chapter two, and it just means healthy. It's actually, the, the original word is what we get our translation of the word hygiene. It means healthy or wellness. And so Paul is saying we need to be about sound doctrine in the church, and there's a reason for all of this. You need to raise up leaders, and you need to put things in order, and you need to teach sound doctrine. And we get a, a powerful verse in Titus 2, 5, that gives us the the real reason, or verse 10 rather, not five. Verse 10, he says at the latter part of it, here's, here's why this matters. So that in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Can I just say this morning that, that when people listen to what we have to say about the gospel, it ought to make Jesus attractive. Now, you, you might listen to me you know, for the rest of this service, and, and you might not be attracted to me one bit. You might leave and go, man, I didn't really like that guy. I don't think I'm going back there. But you better not leave and be less attracted to Jesus because of me, right? Like, if that's the problem, I've done a lot wrong. The purpose that Paul says we need to be committed to sound doctrine, we need to have godly leaders, is so that people will be attracted to our Savior. And if there's just one verse that really communicates the heart of the entire letter. If there's one verse that you need to probably highlight in your Bible so that a year from now when you open the book of Titus and you've forgotten most of everything I've said and you ask yourself, what is this really all about? The verse would be chapter 2, verse 14. I want you to look at it with me and then we're going to jump into chapter 3. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. This is, this is the verse that you say, what's the... Why is this in the scriptures? What's the heart of God behind the letter to Titus? It says this in verse 14, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now that's a mouthful, but let me just say it this way. The thing that God is doing is he is redeeming people and purifying people who are eager to do good. That's what God's up to. That's, that was Paul's motivation in leaving Titus there to put the house in order and to raise up leaders. It was Titus' motivation in pastoring the church. It's our motivation as the church today that when the world looks at us, they would say that is a group of people that are his very own. They don't look like any other civic organization out there. There's something different about their life. This is not just a congregation of people. This is not, this is not just people rallying together because they, they like the same music or they enjoy the same hobbies. And it's not just a place that they gather on the weekend. There's something about those people. Whether it's here or in the marketplace, we see something about them. They are God's very own People. And can I tell you today, that's what God's doing in the earth right now. God's redeeming the lost, and he's purifying the found so that he can have his very own people who are eager to do God's work. That's what God's doing today. If you're lost, he wants you saved. If you're saved, he wants you serving. He's redeeming the lost. He's purifying the found so that we would look like his very own people, eager to do God's work. That's the verse that really explains all of this letter. And now we get into chapter three, and that's where we're going today. I want you with hearts open, Bibles open, put your eyes on the page here. We have it on the screen behind me. Let's look at verse one and two. Paul says now, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Now, I want you to understand something about your Bible. The chapters and the verse divisions were not there when Paul wrote the letter. Do you, when you write a letter, do you, put, do you number the verses? No, you just write the letter, right? That's what Paul did to Now, I'm glad they're in there. I'm glad that when I said Titus 2.14 is a verse you ought to highlight, you could actually find Titus 2.14, because scribes added chapter divisions and verse divisions so that we can find it. Aren't you glad we're not all unrolling scrolls today? Like, where is he? Where? No, we're, we're all on the same page. But here, here's the danger of having that, that we get to the end of a chapter and, and something in our subconscious thinks we've got to the end of a thought. And so we, we, can, we can miss the context and the emphasis and the flow of the letter because we've got it all chopped into paragraphs and verses. What you need to understand is Paul's still in the same thought here. Paul's talking in chapter two about all the elders and, uh, or chapter two rather about all the people in the church, the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women, those that are disadvantaged, the haves and the have-nots. He's talking about all of them and he says God is bringing them all together to be his own people eager to do God's work, and then he flows right in to this chapter, and he begins with a word. Now, I'm not going to talk about every single word in chapter three. We don't have that much time, but I do want to stop and talk about the first word, because he begins chapter three with the word 
remind. And can I just say, as a preacher, that's an important word. It's an important word because there's this tendency for for us that stand up in front of you on a consistent basis to to feel like we have to come in to Sunday and and wow you with a new revelation. There's there's this tendency to want to try to say, well, what can I say that that nobody knows. What can I tell you that you've never heard before? Now, I mean, it's, all, it's great when you can say something that's powerful and everybody wants to retweet you, and that's awesome. But can I tell you this word is important because my primary responsibility is not to, to wow you with intellect, to not to come at you like the sage from the stage that just knows everything you've never heard before. My responsibility is to remind to remind you of the truth of God's word. And can I just say, you got to be careful too, because as church members, we can fall into that same pattern of, of opening our Bible, opening our notebook, and we're not listening for truth, we're listening for revelation. And if you're not careful, you can come and sit in church every Sunday with that mentality that says, tell me something I don't know. And that's dangerous for you too especially if you've been serving the Lord for a long time. Because the longer you come to church, the more bored you get, the more quiet you get, the less amens I get. Because you're not listening for truth, you're listening for revelation. Come on, tell me something fantastic. Tell me something amazing. Tell me something I've never heard before. The people that know this book the best ought to say amen the loudest. That was a good opportunity to look spiritual right there. I was trying to help you. Paul says, you know what you need to do, Titus? You need to remind the people. Remind the people. And and then he begins to list seven things here. He lists seven things in these first two verses that that are practical. And can I just say, this is not revelatory stuff. I mean, the the stuff that he mentions here, it's not a tall order. And and the reality is, knowing the right thing to do is not our problem, is it? I mean, let's be honest here that, you know, that that old adage, everything you needed to learn or know you learned in kindergarten, that's true about a lot of stuff, isn't it? But learning, it wasn't ever the problem. All these years years later, and we're still having a hard time with the application of truth, right? It's not, don't listen to the word of God and say, I knew that. The real question is, can I hear the word of God and say, I do that? See, the danger for us is when, and for Crete, and for the Christians in this context, the danger for us is that we take our cues from the culture, or that we let society set our standards for how we live our life, and we look to the right and to the left, and we decide, we're not even asking what's right. We're asking, what can I do? What's acceptable? What, what can I do? How can I act and yet still, you know, find myself within the framework of, uh, of cultural acceptance, social acceptability? The reality is we have to remind ourselves over and over again, what does God's word say? How does it tell me to live my life? And so Paul begins to say, you need to remind the people. And first he says, be subject to the law. But, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say just be subject to the law, to rulers and authorities. He goes on to say, be ready to do whatever is good. In other words, like we're not looking for the, 
the lowest bar, you know, that we can get over and still be okay. I mean, wouldn't that be terrible advice? That just don't get arrested. <laughs> like, like, remind the church, don't get arrested. You know, don't break the law. No, he says, yes, you obey the laws. And for them, it was a difficult context. They were under Roman authority. They were under laws that were oppressive and contrary to their faith. And yet still, Paul says, hey, you got to honor the law of the land. But go beyond that. He said, be eager to do, be ready to do whatever is good. Can I just tell you that, that a lot of the good in the world happens because of the church? Just imagine for a minute what our society would be like if the church didn't exist. Now, not, not every good deed that is done, not every uh, civic organization is a Christian organization. I'm telling you, it started with the church. The hospital. All right, I'm going to take this one. If you thought I could only preach as long as the battery lasts, you, you were wrong. We got lots of batteries. How about it, Jack? <laughs> Just imagine if the church wasn't eager to do good. You can look at things like the abolition of slavery. And you can see the work of God in the church first. The hospitals, compassion ministries, mercy ministries, on and on and on it goes. And, and it's not because we all read the first two verses in Titus chapter 3. It's not because one day we read the word of God and said, oh man, I got, there's a list here. I guess I got to keep my list. That's not, that's not how it works. What happened was we met Jesus we were amazed by grace, and that grace that redeemed us began to purify us. And all of a sudden, there was a desire in us that we started to look like his very own people. And all of a sudden, we wanted to do good. There's a lot of people that they, they tried faith. They tried Christianity. They tried Jesus, but it didn't work for them because they had it all wrong. What they thought was, if, if, I, can, if, if I can do all those things... If I can keep the list, if I can get all this right on the outside, then, then pretty soon I'll be right on the inside and I'll feel accepted by God and I'll feel a part of the church. And can I tell you, that is absolutely the upside down, inside out understanding of faith. The gospel says the very opposite. The gospel says you come just as you are. You come with all your shortcomings, with all your failures, with all your addictions and idiosyncrasies and you just come and be amazed and be in awe at the wonder of God's grace and when he saves you that spirit comes to live on the inside of you and all of a sudden something begins to change from the inside out and you might have some critical folks looking at you in the early stages going well you don't look any different to me now you go to church yeah but give me time he's working on the inside the Bible says at the moment you're saved, you're changed. On the inside, the old is gone. All things have become new. Give me some time. He's working on me. Amen? He's working. Paul says the church is eager to do good. And he lists seven things here, but I'm just going to give you one word that encapsulates all of them. And the word is influence. That's what he's saying. We're called to have influence for good in the community in every way. Why? We read it earlier in, in verse 10 of chapter 2. So that Jesus 
becomes attractive to the world. So that it becomes attractive. So basically, again, there's no chapter division. So he's saying all this in context. If you want to know my favorite passage of scripture in this whole letter that we've been studying, it's chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. And we talked about it last week because Paul begins to describe what grace does. In verse 11 through 14, he says, grace is saving grace. Then he says, it's serving grace. It's sanctifying grace. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And then he says, it's snatching grace. It's a grace that's going to call us to God's very presence. And he talks about all the great things God does. And it's in that same thought, in that same flow, that he begins to talk about our conduct and the way we live our life. He's talking about influence. And now look at verse, or verse 3 with me. He says, that, and I love this phrase, he says, at one time, we too were foolish. Titus 3.3. 3. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. I, I love the fact that, you know, Paul's trying to get practical here, but I mean, he gets about seven things into his list about what we should do as Christians, and then he just has to go right back to the gospel. Like, he can't get too far into his list, and it's almost like he knows us. Or maybe he just knows himself, because he used to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. He used to be an expert in the law. And it's like he starts listing these things that, that, that characterize the, the attitude and actions of a Christian. And he gets seven in and he goes, now wait a minute, wait a minute. This is about the point where we start looking down our noses at people that are only on step one. You're on three, you're on five, I'm up to seven over here. And we start looking at other people. And so Paul starts saying how we should act and he just stops. He goes, oh yeah, wait a minute, don't forget, at one time, that was you. At one time, you too were all these things. At one time, I was foolish and disobedient and a deceiver and enslaved. That's why the, the subtitle for this series is not how to be good. It's how the gospel can make you good. Because that's the power of the gospel. So he says, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what Jesus has done in your life. And then in the next passage, verse 4 down through 7, he, he does something that is significant. And if you have a, a Bible like mine, it, it's not noted as anything unique. And so you could just read through it and not understand what's actually happening here. So I, I want to read verse 8, and then we'll back up so you understand what's happening. Verse 8 says, This is a trustworthy saying. Now, the reason he said this is a trustworthy saying is because verse 4 through 7 was a phrase that the church knew. In fact, there's five times in the pastoral epistles, which are Titus and First and Second Timothy. There's five different places in those three letters that Paul uses that phrase. He says, this is a trustworthy statement, or this is a, a trustworthy saying and worthy of acceptance. And, and it was something that everybody in the church knew. It was like one of those little phrases, you know, that we just kind of learned by being in church together. It's like when, when somebody's preaching and all of a sudden they say, God is good. And half the people say, some of y'all know it, all the time. And then I say, all the time. And you say, 
God is good. If you ever been in one of those services and somebody said, God is good, and everybody around you said, all the time, and you go, what just happened? Like, I didn't see that in the bulletin. What? Or you've been to like a traditional liturgical service, and it's really quiet and really somber, and everybody's sitting there, and so you're just kind of watching, and then all of a sudden, everybody just responds appropriately in like a responsive moment. You're like, how does everybody know what to say but me? I've been there before. Like, I don't, I don't know. The, I want to I join in, but I don't know the stuff. Well, this was one of those moments. These are trustworthy sayings in the church that everybody knew it. Everybody rehearsed it and said it over and over again. It was something worth repeating to the church. And so you need to know that's what we're looking at. So let's go to verse 4 through 7. And, and we're going to read it out loud together. We're just going to pretend that we all know it. We're not going to be the group that gets left out and doesn't get to do the callback. We're all just going to read it together out loud, verse 4 through 7. Here we go. This is the trustworthy saying. Let's read it. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, come on, how many of you think that would be a good thing to memorize? You just told the gospel story right there. And Paul says this is a trustworthy statement. This is something that all of us know and that we rehearse and that we say over and over again. And why? There's a point to all this. Why is this a trustworthy statement? Look at verse 8 again now. He says it's a trustworthy statement. And I want you, Titus, to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. In other words, when you understand what Christ has done for you, that's going to propel you to want to do good works. So it's a good thing that we say this, that we remind ourselves. It's a good thing that we never move beyond the, the message of the gospel because it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's your understanding of what Christ has done that's going to motivate you to do good. And there's, there's three things that I want to tell you today. I want to remind you today. Three things that happen when Christ saved you. If, you've, if you're not saved, if you don't know the Lord today, whether you're in this room or, or watching online, you need to know this is what happens when a person gives their life to Christ. Three things. A new start, a new standing, and a new story. Let me tell you about this new start. Number one, verse four says to us, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. It's the same word, appeared, that we had in chapter two, verse 11, where he says, for grace has appeared that offers salvation. That's what happens when a person gets saved. Grace appears. You know, we use the phrase, I, I found Jesus. People say that, but can I tell you, it's not true. None of us found Jesus. Grace found us. 
grace appeared. And when did it appear? It appeared in the flesh. The Bible says in the fullness of time. Jesus stepped out of eternity and he put on flesh. He came and dwelt among us. Grace appeared in a manger in Bethlehem. Grace grew up in Nazareth. Grace lived a sinless life. Grace did miracles, signs, and wonders. Grace taught. Grace died a substitutionary death and lived and resurrected a glorious ascension. Grace appeared for us. And that's what Paul is saying. In the moment that grace appears, in the moment that that dawns on your reality, you get a new start. I was thinking, this sounds like a silly illustration to some people, but some of you, you're going to get this. You're going to trek with me. How many of you had the original Nintendo console, the game console, at some time in your life, childhood, adulthood? I had the original Nintendo, and it has two buttons on the front of it, power and reset, power and reset. Now, that power button I wouldn't touch that button to turn that thing off until my mom absolutely made me. I mean, bang the door down, open the door, turn that thing off. I would leave that button alone until it was hot to the touch. But that reset button, I like the reset button. The reset button means that when I get frustrated, when I can't get to the next level, when I've lost too many lives, when the, when the score is terrible, the reset button means I'm not finished playing yet, but I can just hit that button and I can get a clean slate. The reset button means that when I hit reset, my old score doesn't count against me. My old loss record doesn't count against me. And the Bible says to us, when we come to Christ in faith, we have a reset. We have a new start in Christ Jesus. Listen to this verse out of Ezekiel that he, he prophetically speaks about our salvation. In Ezekiel 36, 26, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. When, when we trust God for salvation, in that moment, he radically changes your life. The old calluses that had developed in your lifetime, they're, they're, they're wiped clean and you get a new heart, a new start, a tenderness towards God. And the good thing about that is he doesn't just reset your old life. He doesn't just say, okay, I wiped the slate clean, now you can try again. Because listen to the next verse in Ezekiel. Verse 27 says, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So he's saying, look, not only am I gonna, not only am I gonna give you a new start, but with that you get a new spirit. So you may have tried and fallen short before, but when you come to Christ for salvation, he wipes away the slate of your past and he gives you his spirit. He said, my spirit in you will move you. So now I'm just, I'm not leading by my own ability or my own wisdom anymore. The Spirit of God is on the inside of me, leading me and guiding me and directing my life. Can I tell you today, it doesn't matter what you've done or, or how long you've done it. When you come to Christ, you get a new start with a new spirit. And the second thing we get is a new standing. The word that he uses in verse 7 is justified. 
verse 7, Paul writes, So that having been justified by his grace. That's what happens when you get saved. That's a, that's a legal term. Justification. It's a legal term. And he's saying when you come to Christ, you are justified. If you could just imagine yourself in a courtroom. And you're standing there before the bench. You're the defendant, and all of the accusations are being made. All the final cases have been made, and you're just waiting to hear the verdict, guilty or not guilty. And it's God's courtroom. And God is seated there, and he's got his black robe on. And the Bible communicates that the verdict for you and for me is guilty. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, all have fallen short, guilty. The gavel has come down on your life. But then imagine that judge stands up. He takes off his black robe. He steps down from his judgment seat, and he comes around the bench and he pays the penalty that you owe. Your debt is paid. You're still guilty, but your penalty is paid. And he goes back and he stands up at his seat of judgment, puts his robe back on and declares, you may go free. That is what happens at salvation. You're not suddenly discovered to have been without guilt. You've received a new verdict. You're justified. And it's God sees you as if you hadn't ever even sinned to begin with. You have a new standing. And by the way, that happens immediately. You don't work your way into a right standing. The moment that you're saved, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians that the old is gone. Behold, all things have been made new. We're saved and we're right before God. And the third thing is this, you get a new story. Now somebody ought to say amen to that because you know what your story was before you found your way into grace. You get a new story. The Bible tells a story, and it's only about one verse long, about a man named Enoch in the Old Testament. This is what it says about Enoch. It says in Genesis 5, 24, Enoch walked faithfully with God when he was no more. Then he was no more because God took him away. I, I don't know about you, I love that verse. I can't think of a better verse to have inscribed on your epitaph. I mean, I... I'm not planning on going anywhere, but I'm just telling you, I'd be cool with that verse. I mean, I would maybe change Enoch to he, but just to be able to say, he walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. Isn't that what you want your story to be? I mean, the, Paul says to Titus, we've been justified by grace that we might become the heirs having the hope of eternal life. What he's saying is that Enoch's story is the story of every Christian. That Enoch walked with God. That, th those, are, those are words that describe intimacy and a relationship. It's like when you go back to Genesis, before sin, the Bible says God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. He walked with him. That, 
That phraseology meant they had closeness. They had communion. They had a relationship that he could just walk with him. But then sin came into the story and separated God from man. But even in a sinful world, we have a picture of a man named Enoch who was faithful. And he walked with God every day of his life. He walked with God faithfully. And then one day, he took his last step. One day, he breathed his last breath. One day, his life on this earth came to an end. But the Bible communicates that that is not the end of the story. Because when he took his last breath and his last step, the very next moment, he took his first step in heaven. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And so just like Enoch, we can just walk with God, faithfully walking with God, and then he was no more. Why? Because God took him away in the moment. And that's the promise that we have of salvation. That's the story. That's the new story. That old story, you don't want that one anymore. The old story is that that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The old story is that, that the judgment of God was coming on your life. The old story is that, that you were bound for an eternity of separation from God in hell. This is what salvation does. This is why, this is a trustworthy saying. This is why we ought to remind each other of this. This is why on the first Sunday of the month, just like last month and the month before, we celebrated communion because we want to stay amazed by grace. It's more than a song we sing. He's amazing today. And he's given us a new start. And he's given us new standing. And he's given us a new story. That's why I love the old song that we sing in the church, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, the purchase of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Why? Because at salvation, we got a new song. We got a new story. We got a spirit on the inside of us. And Paul says this is a trustworthy saying. Don't ever forget it. Why would God give us these things? Well, Paul kind of tells us from the negative standpoint in verse 5. He says it's not because of righteous things you've done, but it's because of mercy. It's not because of righteous things you've done. It's mercy. In fact, there's, there's five or four words there in, in this little phrase of the church. The words are kindness in verse 4, love in verse 4, mercy in verse 5, and grace in verse 7. These are all things that come from him. None of them that come from us, right? Not initially. He said these are the things that God is doing. God in his loving kindness appeared. He saved us because of his mercy. Mercy is just not getting the things that you deserve. When we ask for mercy, we're saying, don't give me what I deserve. He gave us his mercy, and then he gave us his grace. Grace is getting the things you don't deserve. 
So mercy is not getting the punishment you do deserve. Grace is getting the blessing you don't deserve. And it's the loving kindness of God poured out on us that Paul says, it's not your works. You know, here's the thing we do. And sometimes this works to our advantage, but sometimes, sometimes it's not so good. We compare our relationship with God to our relationship with our children. And sometimes that's good because God is a loving father. And when you see uh, the love and the faithfulness of a parent, there's nothing else like it. We can say, wow, God's, God's a good father, and he's even better than that. But sometimes it can be a bad thing. It's like, this, you know, my, my family, we have a bunch of home videos, and just a couple weeks ago we were watching home videos of my girls when they were little. You probably did this with your kids too. They're teeter-tottering around the room, barely able to walk, and, and my wife's trying to teach them to clean up. Put your toys away. Put your toys away. And so they wobble over, you know, they pick up a toy, and they walk over there, and, and they drop it, and it bounces off the side of the box and falls on the floor. And Then they go over, and they pick up another one, and they just stick it on a bookshelf or somewhere. And we're just going, good job. Put the toys away. Good job. And, you know, they, they give it their best, and then it's, the room's still a wreck, but we go, good job. You did good. Good job. And then we go and we pick up the toys and we straighten the room. And I think sometimes we, we look at our relationship with God like that. Like, God, I'm just going to spend my life doing my very best to, to organize the mess. I'm going to do my very best to kind of put things in place. And I know I'm not good at it and I know I'm going to fail. But if I just try, if I just give it my dead level best, then God's going to come along beside and he's going to say, good job. And he's going to make up the difference. That's not the gospel. No, the gospel's pretty clear. He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done. Paul says emphatically that that's not God's motivation for saving you. It's not anything that you have done or anything that you can do. So what was it then that, that did move God? towards us. It was his loving kindness. It was his grace. It was his mercy towards us. So, okay, but, but why, Paul? I mean, why are you telling Titus this? He's a preacher. He's traveled with you. He knows this stuff. Why am I harping on this? You know this stuff. You've heard this before. Again, verse 8, he tells us why. He says, remind them so that there's a reason here. So that those who trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. See, great blessing places us under great obligation. I'm going to say that again. Great blessing places us under great obligation. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy or in light of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing, and acceptable, for this is your true and proper worship. What you have to understand about that statement in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is that it follows Romans chapter 1 through 11. And for 11 chapters, Paul was explaining what God did for us. 
Paul's explaining what grace is and how grace saved us and how we didn't deserve it and how it's not based on what we can do. And then he starts chapter 12 and he says, therefore, and let me just give you a good little study tip for scripture. If you ever see therefore, you need to back up a few verses and see what it's there for. It's there for a reason. And the reason is for 11 chapters, he's talking about what grace has done. And he says, because there's great blessing in your life, there's a great obligation. Because of what Christ has done, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We see it again in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, therefore, Philippians 2.1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if there's any comfort from his love, if there's any common sharing in the spirit, if there's any tenderness and compassion, which by the way, there is. There's all of those things in Christ. He says in verse two, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. What is he saying? He's saying the great grace, the great blessing that has been bestowed upon you puts you under an obligation to, to live your life in light of his goodness. And then we have our present text, Titus chapter 3. He talks about all the incredible things that God has done for us in salvation. He says, that's a, that's a trustworthy saying. And in light of that, stress these things. Stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Now, back in the back of the sanctuary is, is a box that is full with tote bags of groceries because many of you took those bags home with you last Sunday. And at some point during this last week, you took out of your own resources, whether you had canned goods in your pantry or you added it to your grocery list, but there are 50 tote bags that are full of groceries that people have provided so that we can take them this week to our food pantry so that we can bless somebody in a time of need. It might be somebody that, that attends church somewhere and loves Jesus. It might be somebody that knows nothing about God's grace, but we are compelled to do good. And so many of you were compelled to just do good. Why? You were compelled because of the grace that we celebrated in communion today. You were compelled because you know at one time, so were some of you. You know that if it was not for grace, you'd have a different story. You'd have a different standing. If not for grace. And so we're compelled, he says, to do good things. And that's just one example of who we are as the church. We're God's very own people, eager to do what is good. Now, just to say we got there, I'm going to give you the last few verses of the text because we've preached like 98% of the book of Titus. In the last paragraph, Paul describes two different types of people in the church. Talks about those who are a blessing and those who are trouble. And in case you didn't know it, I'm sad to report to you today, we still have both types in the church. We have those who are a blessing, and we have those who are trouble. And so Paul describes what to do, how to handle these groups in the church. 
And the first thing he says about those who are problematic in the church, he, he tells Titus two things about those who are trouble in the church. The first one, he says, don't imitate them. I mean, if you got troubled people in the church, don't act like them. Don't do what they do. Look at, look at verse 9 with me. It says, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Because these things are unprofitable and useless. Now, we don't know the details of these squabbles they were having about genealogy and, and arguments. and We have some idea of what they were talking about, but here's what you really need to know about the description. It's just the last phrase in that verse. It says, because these things are unprofitable and useless. And that's really the, the qualifying statement. I quoted earlier out of Second. Timothy 3, where it says, all scripture is profitable and useful. So in other words, the stuff they were arguing about wasn't scriptural stuff. It wasn't eternal matters. It didn't matter. And so he's saying, look, don't imitate those people. Don't be sidetracked by all the, the stuff. You know, there's just a lot of stuff we don't know. We, and it doesn't matter. But there are things that are important and Paul said those things, they don't, they don't matter. They're useless. They're trivial. So don't get sucked into that stuff. The second thing he said, and this is a little bit of a harder challenge, but he said deal decisively with them. Look at verse 10. Paul writes, warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. That's strong. He said, look, if somebody's going to be divisive, warn them in grace. Warn them twice. But if they still don't listen, have nothing to do with them. Now, let me just say, he's not talking about people that, that disagree with the price for kids camp. <laughs> he's not talking about people that, that disagree with the church calendar or with the remodeling that's happening out on the outside of the building. I mean, that would be pretty harsh, right? To be like, just, we have nothing to do with you. You disagree. I think there are some people that interpret the scripture that way. I've, I've been in some of those churches. But he's talking about people that are divisive about the word of God. He's talking about people that are, that are stifling the health and the life of the church. And he says, look, there, there are some people that they're just, they just refuse to get along. Warn them lovingly. Go to them twice. Matthew 18 gives us a beautiful uh, understanding of how to do that. You go to them. You go to the elders of the church and you hold them accountable. You try to restore them. But Paul says very clearly, if they won't listen, you cut them off. Again, that sounds harsh, but it's actually the most loving thing they could do. See, they didn't have 100 churches to choose from on the island of Crete. So if you're a part of the church, it's not just an hour and a half on Sunday, hour and 31 minutes on Sunday. It was, sun, it was the meals, it was fellowship, it was communion together on a daily basis. And so when a person would not align themselves under spiritual authority and the authority of the word of God, the most loving thing they could do to that person is say, we... We can't have fellowship with you. That person then finds themselves on the outside 
of community. They're no longer a part of the family of God. And the hope is, like the prodigal son who found himself in the pig slop, would recognize, wait a minute, I want to be in my father's house. My, my father's servants have it better than me. And that those people would find their way back to faith. Unfortunately, today, we don't have those same convictions because we do have hundreds of churches to choose from. And if there ever is a moment of spiritual discipline, rather than receiving it, most people just go, well, I didn't like that preacher anyway. I've been checking out this church over here on Facebook. I think I'm going to go visit them, right? And we just, we just go somewhere else because we got a, a buffet line of, of churches. And, and if a person doesn't respond to spiritual discipline, that's between them and the Lord. But the teaching of God's word is clear that we are to be guided as a church, eager to be his own people, eager to do good works. We're to be guided by this book right here. And that means we say this is what the word of God says. And we hold one another accountable to the word of God. And then he mentions right at the end people that are a blessing to the church. And he mentions two men, Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos. See, some people thought all lawyers were from the devil. Here's a good one right there. <laughs> They're not all bad. Zenos was a good guy. He said, do everything you can in verse 13 to help them on their way and to see that they have everything they need. Most people believe that Zenos and Apollos were actually ones that were carrying this letter. That they delivered the letter to Titus. And here at the conclusion of the letter, Paul says, make sure you take care of these guys. You know, we, we do that as a church whenever we have missionaries. You know, you heard on the announcements earlier in a couple of weeks, uh, Ron Rhodes is going to be preaching. He's a full-time evangelist. He travels. He carries the word of God, much like Zenos and Apollos were. And so what Paul was saying is, hey, the church ought to support these people. They're doing my work. And so he goes on in verse 14 to say, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And in this application, it was furthering the ministry. In this application, it was meeting the needs of these people that are traveling as itinerant ministers. And so he gives this practical instruction, and again, it ties into this theme, that we ought to devote ourselves to doing what's good. Whether it's stocking the shelves at a food pantry or supporting a missionary, we ought to be committed to doing what is good and to honoring God with our lives. We'll end with the last verse. Seems to make sense. Verse 15 says, everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And, and I just want to say about that, I'm glad that if the last command is devote yourselves to do what is good, then I'm glad the final word is grace to you all. Because that's what we need, isn't it? There's not a person in this room that has not tried to do what is good and fallen short. We need grace. We need grace so that when the world looks at us, they say, that is God's very own people. So that we don't have to get up every day and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try to be a good Christian. No. We're going to fall in love every day with a trustworthy saying of grace that gives me a new start. As sure as the sun rises, it gives me a new start. It gives me a new standing with God. 
It gives me a new story, and and that motivates me every day to want to live and die for his glory. That's the heart of this letter, and that's God's heart for you and I. I want to pray for you at the conclusion of this service, and just right where you're sitting, would you just make an altar there in your own heart? Bow your head with me. All over this room, with hearts bowed and eyes closed, let's just focus in for a moment on the Lord. And I just wonder if there is anyone here today hearing this message of God's grace, you need a new start. I wonder if there's anyone here today that that knows that the rap sheet on their life is a mile long and you need to be justified. You need a new standing today. God can give you that. He can do it today and he wants to do it. If you need God's grace, right now, just invite it into your life. Invite him into your life. And I believe in this moment, just as sure as Paul wrote it, grace will appear. Grace appears and it offers salvation. That's the offer that's before you right now. So Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that needs saving grace, they need redemption, they need to be justified, they need to be able to walk with God. They need to have that kind of relationship where there's a nearness, there's a closeness and an intimacy where they don't feel distant from you. They don't feel abandoned by you. Like Enoch, they want to be able to know that they can just walk with God every day until their last and then they can just continue that journey in your presence. Father, I pray that grace would appear right now that, Lord, miracle-working salvation would happen right now. If you need that grace today, just receive it. Say, God, I receive your grace. God, I receive your mercy. God, I receive your salvation. Jesus, I give you my life right now, Lord. I give you everything that I am. I give you all that I am. Just receive it. Receive his grace today. Now, Lord, I pray for the church. God, we need your grace every day. We need your mercy. Father, make us your people, your own people in this community. Lord, that the world would look and see there's something different. Lord, help us to never become motivated by a list of commands, but to be compelled and thrust to do good works because of the amazing grace that has found us. Lord, we thank you today for your presence at work in our lives. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. If you're thankful for his word, would you just give him praise today? Come on, let's let him know we're thankful for his grace in our lives. Amen. Would you stand with me?